fiction does that thing that none of us can do, which is actually get outside the confines of our own perceptions and consciousness and feel what it's like to look at the world through a different set of perceptions. Coming up on In Contrast, author Jennifer Egan. I'm Ilan Stavans, and In Contrast is a production of New England Public Radio and Quixote Productions. Jennifer Egan is the author of novels and short stories. Her novel, A Visit from the Goon Squad, won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 2011, and her most recent work, Manhattan Beach, won the Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Fiction in 2018. As a journalist, Egan frequently writes for the New York Times Magazine. She is currently president of PEN America, a nonprofit that works to defend and celebrate free expression through the advancement of literature and human rights. We'll begin with a reading from Manhattan Beach. The first section is called The Shore. They'd driven all the way to Mr. Stiles' house before Anna realized that her father was nervous. First, the ride had distracted her, sailing along Ocean Parkway as if they were headed for Coney Island, although it was four days past Christmas and impossibly cold for the beach. Then the house itself, a palace of golden brick, three stories high, windows all the way around, a rowdy flapping of green and yellow striped awnings. It was the last house on the street, which dead-ended at the sea. Her father eased the Model J against the curb and turned off the motor. Toots, he said, don't squint at Mr. Stiles' house. Of course I won't squint at his house. You're doing it now. No, she said, I'm making my eyes narrow. That's squinting, he said, you've just defined it. Not for me. He turned to her sharply, don't squint. That was when she knew. She heard him swallow dryly and felt a chirp of worry in her stomach. She was not used to seeing her father nervous. Distracted, yes. Preoccupied, certainly. Why doesn't Mr. Stiles like squinting, she asked. No one does. You never told me that before. Would you like to go home? No, thank you. I can take you home. If I squint? If you give me the headache I'm starting to get. If you take me home, Anna said, you'll be awfully late. She thought he might slap her. He'd done it once after she'd let fly a string of curses she had heard on the docks, his hand finding her cheek invisibly as a whip. The specter of that slap still haunted Anna, with the odd effect of heightening her boldness in defiance of it. Her father rubbed the middle of his forehead, then looked back at her. His nerves were gone. She had cured them. Anna, he said, you know what I need you to do. Of course. Be your charming self with Mr. Stiles's children while I speak with Mr. Stiles. I knew that, Papa. Of course you did. She left the Model J with eyes wide and watering in the sun. It had been their own automobile until after the stock market crash. Now it belonged to the union, which lent it back for her father to do union business. Anna liked to go with him when she wasn't in school, to racetracks, communion breakfasts, and church events, office buildings where elevators lofted them to high floors, occasionally even a restaurant, but never before to a private home like this. Jennifer Egan, it's a pleasure to have you here in In Contrast. Thank you for inviting me. 
I want to start with a question that hopefully brings together two of your writing paths, the path you have as a fiction writer and the path you have as a journalist. I wonder if you could define for me the difference or the similarities between what the fiction writer considers truth and what the journalist considers truth. Are they one and the same? Are they different? That's such a great question. Well, a little bit sort of gets at the question of what aspect of the truth you mean. I think maybe because I do write fiction and nonfiction, I believe very strongly in the inviolability of fact when working as a journalist. In other words, there's that argument that, well, if I just invent this quote or sort of create this composite person, I'm actually getting closer to the truth than I would be if I left it all in the more messy way that life unfolds. And I really don't subscribe to that at all. So I guess in a certain way, for me, the practices are diametrically opposed in terms of how I approach them. Because as a journalist, my job is to interact with and observe reality over the course of often some months, because I tend to do stories that have a long kind of arc and involve watching people deal with complex problems over time. At the same time that I'm doing that, I'm usually trying to understand the issue from a more observer's journalistic perspective in terms of reading documents and doing whatever else I need to to kind of understand the nuts and bolts of it. And I'm trying to reach a point of saturation, a kind of brief expertise that allows me to condense all of this complexity into something that is readable and somehow right to the issue as I understand it. With fiction, especially because of the way I write it, which involves having no plan initially and really relying on my unconscious to come up with a lot of the big moves of my books or stories, I'm really discovering the world that I'm going to write about, discovering slash creating, rather than dealing with any real-world referent. So the practice of writing when I'm writing fiction is really one of letting the fictional world unfold in an almost improvisational way. And then in the editing process, I shape and groom and try to fix and make better in all kinds of ways. So the writing of fiction for me is a long kind of sprawling process in which I discover the world I'm writing about. But when I write a journalistic piece, it's a relatively short amount of the time that I might spend working on the piece because most of that time has gone into achieving that expertise to begin writing. When you talk about the fictional world that you discover, is that world already existent somewhere and you are arriving to it? Or your act of discovery is in itself the creation of that world? I think it's the latter. because, And I think that gets at what makes writing interesting and exciting for me. And that is just the feeling of escape. That's one word you could use, but I would actually use transcendence. I like that feeling of being elevated out of my daily life into another world. That is really the motivation. So if I'm writing about a world I know, that feeling is denied me. I need to feel like I've never seen it before. And so echoes and correlations from my own life usually occur to me late enough in the process that there's nothing I can do about it because I like that feeling of discovery. When you are creating this world while you are discovering it, 
Is there a truth in that world that you are trying to get at, that truth that is waiting for you somewhere? Or the truth changes as your process of discovery and of creation changes? In particular, I want to know if there are facts that emerge to you in the act and art of creating your fictional world that you recognize as truthful, that in some ways, though you're describing the process in a very different way, would be similar to the facts that you would find in the actual real world, the concrete one, the one that we are actors in. In dealing with fiction, the use of the word truth is a little bit tricky for me. So much of this is terminology and just the ways that we describe these things for ourselves. But I don't tend to think about or use for myself the word truth when I'm working on fiction. It's not that I think, oh, it's all lies, because, of course, the way I see fiction is operating as the sort of dream life of the culture, if you will. We all go to sleep at night and we are remarkable fiction writers or filmmakers, whatever you want to say. We create rich, symbolic texts that incorporate elements of our lives in very artful ways and often very beautiful or disturbing or arresting ways. And they are a kind of synthesis of our lives and thoughts and consciousnesses in some way. And they're complex enough that we often don't understand them ourselves. To me, that's what fiction is doing for the culture at large. And so in a certain way, I do see myself as kind of a vehicle for a lot of what's around me that I may not even be consciously aware of, but that I am hopefully channeling into whatever I'm doing, because it had better be bigger than anything I can think of, or it's simply not going to have the heft and the weight and the meaning that good fiction must have. Do you actually use your dreams in the process of writing a novel or even creating a piece of journalism, the dreams themselves as that window or that door to the unconscious, individual or societal, do they infringe themselves in some way while you are writing? Do you see Anna Kerrigan or Dexter Stiles in a dream? No, I really don't. Although Sleep is kind of an important part of my process. I'm almost too good a sleeper. I'm a sort of inadvertent napper. I don't write on a computer. I don't write fiction on a computer, I should say. I do write journalism on a computer. So I, I actually like to recline. It's the most comfortable position. So not surprisingly, I'll sometimes actually fall asleep while writing, which I always feel really badly about. And I always worry that it means what I'm doing is really boring. But I feel like what I'm actually doing is sort of dipping back into that dream life, although for the first time for a book I have not yet even gotten close to writing, I actually did have a dream scene, just an environment that I thought, oh, I think I'll use that. The other thing I should mention is I don't really ever begin with anything other than an environment. So that's about the most I'm going to walk in with, which is another reason there aren't a lot of real-life corollaries for me. I'm often thinking about times and places that I remember and sort of drawing from their richness, but I never sit down thinking, okay, here's the story I want to tell. In this description that you are giving me, is it always a lonesome atmosphere? Can you write next to other people as... Some can do in a cafe or in an environment where others are typing or others are talking. Do you need absolute solitude for those images of the unconscious to come to you? 
No, not at all. I can write anywhere. I mean, that's one of the things I love about not writing on a computer. I don't even need a machine. And once I'm in the editing phase, I have edited on escalators. I have edited in elevators. I almost had my first child at home because I was so busy trying to get through one more chapter that, you know, it almost was too late to get to the hospital. I can really write under rather extreme <laughs> conditions. Do you prefer one type of writing? Now I'm talking about fiction again vis-a-vis -vis journalism. Is one more pleasurable to you, more challenging? Do you sometimes use journalism as an interlude when delving into a larger project that is a novel, or would that feel as an interruption? I often will be theoretically working on both at once, but usually in a day-to-day -day way, I'm only doing one or the other. In terms of which I enjoy more, there's something about the feeling of writing fiction that feels closest to my core, and that is what I did first. I had the opportunity to do journalism because I already had written fiction. Certainly, that's where I started, and I feel like that's kind of where I finished. If I had to give up one, it would be journalism. There's no question. But I have to say that, in a way, that doesn't represent things totally accurately, because I think if I hadn't had the life that I've had as a journalist, my fiction would have been very limited. And I think especially because I don't use my own life ever, at least not knowingly. I find it dull to even imagine that. I am really reliant on the continued expansion of my world to include new environments, situations, people. I feel a strong need to be pretty aware of what's going on culturally, or at least close enough to it that I'm picking up on things I may not be consciously aware of. The whole thing's going to shut down for me if I have to stop doing that. So journalism is what kind of keeps me active in the world. So it's been really quite essential. Does an idea come to you because you have just finished a piece of journalism where you thought that maybe an aspect of it could be turned into a fictional universe. You said you don't use your own life, but how about the life of others deluded or transformed through fiction in order for that journalistic portrayal that you gave not to be tangible? Yes, there's a lot of back and forth in both directions. And actually, even from the start, the reason I actually accepted the first journalism assignment that I had, I was working on my novel, Look at Me, which involves a fashion model whose face is destroyed in an accident and has to be rebuilt. And so I really wanted to know what the day-to-day -day life of a rather successful New York fashion model would be like. So I started calling modeling agencies and fully expected to get some help and cooperation because most people are eager to help a writer. And I had published a book. I had some legitimacy. I could not get them to listen long enough to even explain what it was that I was trying to do. And right about then, a friend of mine got a job at the New York Times Magazine and said, hey, you know, we want someone to write about these young teenagers who are basically living as adults in New York, having not even graduated from high school, not even legal age. Would you be interested in doing that? And my real motive was, I thought, if I call these agencies and I say I'm from the New York Times, I think they'll actually not hang up on me. <laughs> so it really started there. To give you examples of the ideas flowing in both directions, there's a story in my first story collection called Sacred Heart, which is about girls at Catholic school 
And one of them has a problem with self-injury. She cuts herself, and the other becomes very fascinated by that and actually sort of fascinated by the girl herself and in a certain way falls in love with her in a sort of schoolgirl way. I had a friend in college who had a problem with self-injury, but I really had never heard of it before, and I knew nothing about the reasons for it. And then later, I was assigned a piece, or I was I jumped at an opportunity out of this curiosity that I clearly already had to write about self-injury as a medical phenomenon. And so I did that, and that led me to understand all kinds of things about the syndrome that I had no idea of while I was actually writing about it dramatically. Because you don't need to really know much about something from a scientific standpoint to see it functioning in people's lives. And then the biggest example of things moving the other direction, sort of starting with journalism and ending up in my fiction, is that I wrote a piece in 2000 about the secret out lives that closeted gay teens were living online. And this was really a revelation to me because I was already in my 30s. guess I had email. You know, I'd had it for a couple of years, but there was no social media yet. This was really a much earlier point for the internet. But indeed, there were scores of teenagers who were very closeted at home who were living these out lives online and had been able to find each other using bulletin boards, which was the way that, I guess, the kind of predecessor to social media. So I got to know a lot of these teens online and I found a paradox in their thinking about their lives, and that was that they considered their online lives to be their real lives because they could actually be their real selves in that environment. And yet, as we all know, online life is fraught with deception, and that was true for these teens, the number one form of deception being adults pretending to be teens in order to have interactions, sometimes sexual with these teens online. And so there was this kind of strange paradox, which was that what they considered to be their real lives often had no connection to reality as we think of it. And that led me to wonder whether, and this is, remember, back in 2000, whether the whole advent of virtual experience has really relegated obsolete the real-unreal binary that we have traditionally used to evaluate our experience And all of that circuitously led me to write my novel, The Keep, which is a gothic thriller that kind of asks the question of whether our present state of awaiting disembodied or engaging in disembodied communication virtually all the time, as we certainly do, mimics the gothic experience in which an expectation of the supernatural permeates everything. Mm, Extraordinary. I want you to talk a little bit about the relationship between words and images in your process of creation. When you are sitting down, reclined, and handwriting the piece that is going to become a short story or it's going to become a novel, are you visualizing things and the words are only the conduit? Do the words themselves already in that process of pre-editing become aspects, objects, tangible entities in front of you that could distract you or instead could also lead you to other realities, other entities, other universes. Do you visualize what's happening or the words are the ones that are leading you the way and it's the words that you're seeing? You know, it's interesting. It's actually both in that I'm not seeing the words. And I think that's why I write by hand because I have terrible handwriting and I don't want to look at the words in a typeface on a screen. 
So I'm not seeing them in that way, but the words, as they rather improvisationally run from my hand, are bringing with them the images. So the words lead. It's not that I'm seeing them, but I'm following them. They are creating the world as I write them. But I don't know what I'm going to write, because if I do know, it's not going to be that interesting. My conscious mind is not that useful a tool in terms of inventing things. Very useful in terms of evaluating and analyzing and organizing. But I think improvisation is a good metaphor or a good analogy, because even though I've never done any other kind of improv, like musical or acting, it seems the point of improvisation is to find a kind of natural, organic logic and fall into it and stay with it and see where it leads so that the act of doing it is what creates the thing that you end up having done. There's no plan. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. That's the price you pay. But that's very much what I'm doing in my first drafts. And as a result, there's a lot of terrible stuff that I write in those first drafts. But hopefully, amidst all of that are the essential elements of something that could ultimately be interesting. I want to go to that terrible stuff as you described it in a second, but I want to stay just a little bit longer with that idea of improvisation. Improvisation has also a rhythm or a music of its own that lulls us or enables us to kind of lose consciousness or enable us to forget what we're doing. Do you think that in the very first draft that you're shaping, there is already a rhythm, a rhythm to the words, a rhythm to the sentences and paragraphs, a rhythm to how the language is dancing on, on the page that is a type of music, or the music only comes later on when you are polishing the piece when you are in the process of editing? No, I think the rhythm is right there from the start, and it's a lot of what is making everything happen. And sometimes the rhythm ends up being wrong, but there's always a rhythm. And that I think that's really the essential element. And I think, again, back to handwriting, typing, I can't get a rhythm while typing. For me, the meditative quality of the physical motion of my arm, the kind of organic connection of the ink to the paper is all part of what lets that rhythm happen. And writing cursive, which I do terribly, as I said, it's I've performed handwriting analysis on myself to try to figure out what certain words mean. But that sense of a kind of physical involvement that I can't get from typing is an essential part of the equation. When you talk about rhythm, could you borrow from music any lexicon to describe what that rhythm is? Is it the rhythm of jazz? Is it the rhythm of a particular type of music that you like? Does it have an equivalent in musical terms, or it is a rhythm that belongs exclusively to the patterns and to the syncopation of the written language? Well, I should just preface this by saying that I'm not that musical. Actually, I don't play an instrument and I can't read music. So you're going to be talking to kind of an ignoramus here trying to bluff my way into, you know, speaking knowledgeably about music. But what I would say is probably jazz in that improvisation just seems to be inherently a part of that genre in a way that it isn't necessarily with anything else. And so and that sense of sort of letting each instrument have its moment And sometimes it kind of goes on too long or it goes too far. But the important thing is that each element gets its due and there's a sense of all of them working together in a kind of texture. So in that way, I think it's the most like jazz. 
But the other thing that's kind of strange is that as I listen to all kinds of music and also like just plain old rock and roll, I often find myself thinking, I really like the way we're listening to one melody, but underneath it, there's been this other sort of pulse that we're barely paying attention to. And at the very end, that pulse becomes foremost. And so it's sort of a surprise, but it's also inevitable because it's always been there. And I will think that's something I want to do in fiction. So I will actually listen to music and think, I want to do that. And I don't even have the right name for it because I'm not educated in music. But I guess I see the musical elements as working together narratively on some level. Are you also an improvisational person in your non-literary life, in your non-journalistic life? In other words, with your kids, as you go about whatever affairs you are handling, do you improvise or are you a more methodical, rigid, systematic, goal-oriented person? I'm definitely improvisational, but I'm also pretty goal-oriented. I guess I believe so much in improvisation that I think it is our best bet at accomplishing goals often. I feel over time more and more faith in letting things happen organically if possible. I feel like there's a part of me that always wanted to keep pounding away at things that just weren't happening easily because I thought they should be happening. I'm much more likely now to honor the fact that something is happening easily and assume that that means it's the right moment for it to happen. And to even approach things like trying to figure out whom to have to dinner or what to make for dinner for my kids, I mean, something as basic as that, and to sort of let a vision come to me. I mean, not to get too lofty about making hamburgers, but let some sort of idea come to me that feels naturally right, rather than thinking, we had this yesterday, we must have this today. I guess I do really believe in the power of improvisation to fall in line with larger rhythms that we're better off adapting to than opposing. I love it. Could you define the word improvisation for me? Oh, no. <laughs> You're pushing against my terminology. Okay, I'm going to define it as, I think I may have said something like this already, but letting an organic narrative develop and following the logic of that wherever it might lead. Beautiful. All right. Now, I want to ask you about that terrible draft that you just mentioned a few minutes ago and that I have seen you mention in the profile, for instance, in The New Yorker and in other places, it seems that in the case of Manhattan Beach, if I have it right, you actually wrote many, many handwritten pages and then discovered that this was subpar, that it was unworthy, that you didn't like it. How do you get to know what you like and what you don't like? What do you trust inside you to know this is the right paragraph, this is the right tone, the right rhythm, the right improvisation? Well, There are different phases of asking those questions. With Manhattan Beach, I began to have a lot of doubts as I was working on the first draft. But one thing that made it really hard to cope with those doubts is that the nature of the way I write is that I don't really know what the first draft consists of as I'm working on it. I try when I'm writing original material to write five to seven pages a day. And I read over what I wrote the day before to kind of fall back into the logic of that but I never look at it again. So I'm really only going forward and looking back only as much as I need to to just situate myself. So the whole thing is kind of a mystery as I'm working on it, but I will know that I've had really bad days or days where nothing was happening. 
days where I was almost just killing time to be done with those pages, like literally just filling them up with anything to get through it. And, you know, when that happens enough, it starts to be really unpleasant. So I had a lot of doubts in the process. Then I type up that first draft, which in the case of Manhattan Beach actually took a year and a half to write. So you can imagine that having not looked back at material I had written a year and a half earlier, I truly had no idea of what was in the book to some degree. So I typed it up and I read it, and that's always a really painful point because now I'm subjecting to print something that has been written in a very messy, as I said, improvisational kind of intuitive way. Again, it's just a very painful thing to see how far it is from being anything anyone would want to read. But this is not just true of Manhattan Beach. I think what made it so acute in the case of Manhattan Beach were a few things. One of them was just that it was very long. And the previous book that I had written, A Visit from the Goon Squad, I wrote in pieces. So I really hadn't had to contend with hundreds of pages of subpar material in quite a few years. And I think in a way, I'd sort of forgotten about how hard that was. The other thing was that because Manhattan Beach is set outside my lifetime and involves a lot of very technical detail, lots of realms of work that I knew nothing about, deep sea diving, ship repair, criminal activity on the waterfront, and because I only knew what I really needed to learn about after I wrote that first draft, since I had no story when I started, I felt as if there was absolutely no way I could acquire the amount of knowledge that I needed to, to really write, not just write authoritatively about this stuff, but also start to have some fun, which is even a step beyond authority. That's relaxation. That really takes expertise. And actually, this leads right back to your first question about journalism, which is that if I had not had the experience that I've had of years of tackling these very complex, sometimes very technical and scientific issues, there is no way I could have become conversant enough in these different realms in the 1930s and 40s to write about them. It just would not have been possible. And what made you change your mind? At what point in the transcription, which probably was a mechanical stage, putting it from the handwriting to the word processor, at what point did you feel, all right, I think this could work? What was the bulb that turned on and where did it come from? It's hard sometimes to reconstruct this because once it's done, it takes on this kind of like iconic solidity and I can never quite remember when I thought what. But I think I had to do one more complete draft before I started to actually think this could be fun. Because if something isn't fun, I have no interest in it. And things can be very dire and still be fun. My definition of fun is probably broader <laughs> than some people's. But I particularly remember it was a scene that I was writing that involves an illegal dive for a body in New York Harbor in 1942. Or actually, I guess it's early 1943 when they do that. And it brings together many different plot elements and therefore had me very worried because any sort of convergence is very difficult to pull off if you haven't done everything right up until that point. And somehow I could feel in the revising that that convergence had some real life to it and kind of an excitement. It was somehow working on that scene and feeling caught up in it in a way that I thought, oh, wow, maybe this actually will work. 
So you don't abandon something that is really causing you discomfort. You stick to it until you find that moment of enlightenment. Other writers might say, well, I'm going to put this project altogether on the side or throw it to the garbage. It's not for me or it's not for me now. But even though you've been telling me about what fun is, it seems that in those early stages, that fun was not as present or was de facto absent, and yet you were there to persist. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, first of all, it was very fun at the beginning. I should say that it was really only when I got about three quarters of the way through that first draft that I started to feel like instead of starting to move towards some sort of a conclusion, I felt like it just kept getting bigger. And that is never a good sign. I began to feel I was kind of losing control of it. And in fact, that it was kind of falling apart. But at the very beginning, there were certain things I remember being happy about right from the start. I loved that I was able to bring various worlds together in a way that felt plausible, like the world of organized crime, the world of shipbuilding, and also the world of kind of elite, old money banking New York. Those three things seemed to be falling together in a way that felt organic and possible, and that was very exciting to me. So there were some things that were fun. But once that really dark period began to happen, it is interesting that I kept going. It's not that I never stop. Like, for example, there were sections from the Goon Squad that I could never make work, and I had to abandon them. What I find is that when something really needs to be thrown in the trash, one sign of that is that it usually comes as an enormous relief to stop working on that thing. But what I found with Manhattan Beach Even though I gave myself permission to quit because I really thought, I don't want to throw good time after bad. If this is not going to work, I need to know. But what I found was that when I gave myself the option to work on something else instead, what I felt drawn back to was Manhattan Beach. And if not the text itself, which I had huge, grave doubts about, the research felt incredibly alive and so thrilling. And that ultimately seemed like a very good sign to me because I thought if I can be excited by a book called How to Abandon Ship to the point where I'm reading it on the elliptical machine, I don't even want to get off because I'm enjoying this book so much, there has to be a reason because I would never normally want to read a book like that. So it was the research gave me faith in the project. And in fact, even beyond that, I thought, okay, I'm enjoying this research. I don't know if the book is going to work. I have to decide that it's okay if all I end up with at the end of the day is that I've done this research. Is that okay? And I decided, yes, that's okay. So I kept going. Do your moods at the end of the day change dramatically depending on what happens on a single day? By the time you finish, whenever your writing session is over, do you notice yourself in a melancholic state or in a nostalgic state or in a depressed state or in a euphoric state? It can go all of those ways. <laughs> kind of depends what's happened. I'm not affected by whether the material is sad material or tragic or traumatic. I'm affected by whether I think it was any good or not. That will have a huge print on the rest of my day. And I remember especially when my kids were little and I would pick them up from school, having to transition from writing to going to get them, especially if I felt like the writing hadn't gone well, was agony. It almost had a, an element of physical sickness to it, like having to move out of one world into another, having not really completed the experience somehow. 
I also think I really became sort of depressed in a bigger way about Manhattan Beach and the sense that of failure that I felt about it for a long time. And I also felt like people expected a lot of me because I had very good luck with my previous book. And so that feeling of expectations on me and the sense of not being able to fulfill those expectations, it wasn't so much that people would be so gravely disappointed because on some level, no one really cares, certainly not as much as I do, but more the feeling of having been overvalued and having that overvaluation be revealed by my inability to do anything good again. Those kinds of thoughts are really hard to work through. It's just hard to get anything done when your mind is going in those directions. Did you have a sense that the overvaluation that came with the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award? National Book Critics Circle Award. The National Book Critics Award. Was it playing tricks in your mind that maybe you could not reach another level like this, but that maybe you were unworthy, something that all of us often might have, or that it was a mistake? Any of those thoughts that generally come with success, could that be a trap? It's definitely a trap. I was certainly not a new kid on the block when I had all that good luck. I had been a National Book Awards judge one year. I already knew that it was mostly luck to get that stuff because, of course, it is. I mean, it's pleasing the right group of people at the right time with the right item. So I don't think I had illusions about needing to be great, capital G, because I'd been told I was. I think it was actually a little more scary in a way because it was this feeling that I was not the writer who had written those other books anymore. Like somehow I had become a much worse writer and I would never be able to get back to that. And I actually thought, you know, I'm going to have to change careers. But journalism came to my rescue a little because I thought, you know what, if I can't write fiction anymore, then I'm not going to be writing fiction. And if winning a prize so discombobulates me that I can't write anymore, then I was pretty close to the end anyway. So get going on some journalism and help make the world a better place. <laughs> so a few years later, what are those feelings like? The book Manhattan Beach is out. The reviews have been terrific. There have been comparisons with A Visit from the Goon Squad. Do you feel that that sense of the trap is over and it was the trap that any writer that gets a big prize or gets the wonderful surprise of accolades, are you more relaxed for your next book or that is a pattern that comes after any success? I think it's a pattern that comes after the completion of any work, even putting aside questions of success. Anything that seems good is always cast a long shadow just for myself. But I do think when I was really struggling with Manhattan Beach, at one point my husband David said, you know, I think you really just need A Visit from the Goon Squad not to have been your last book. And it does feel so great to just have a different book to talk about and to remember that hopefully there's another book every time. And if there's not, that's not a tragedy either. You know, we we're, I'm just trying to play this out as long as I can continue to do work that seems interesting to me and hopefully fun to others. But there are no guarantees that it goes on forever. I feel sort of like I threaded the needle one more time by some kind of miracle, which I guess is another way of saying that I don't really take it for granted that I'm going to have another book that's successful. One of the extraordinary aspects of your career, one of the aspects that I find really stunning is the range of registers. 
I'm certainly not the only one that talks about the different modes that you can enter. And in a way, Manhattan Beach was a surprise because you had trained people, so to speak, particularly with a visit from the Goon Squad, to be experimental, to be edgy, to be fractured, to be episodic. And I would like you to tell me how they come to you. A story comes in that more cutting edge or more traditional register as it is evolving, or do you get the sense that you are here to experiment, that your next book will not be similar to The Keep or to Emerald City, because that is your signature. Your signature is to have a different signature every time. Well, it's funny. You know, I think that it really does start pretty simply, again, with just time, place, and atmosphere. And that's really all I have going in to any of the books. And there's usually a kind of uncomfortable period early on where I'm trying to use the tools that I used in the previous work to approach working in this new environment. And they don't work. So to give you one example from a while ago, my novel, Look at Me, it's very urban, kind of ironic, was meant to be sort of futuristic, although a lot of things that I projected kind of had already happened by the time the book even came out. But it was trying to be sort of ironic and even sort of satirical. So I told you already a little bit about the genesis of The Keep. I was really interested in now a very different kind of time and place, which is the Gothic, which is basically a literary realm. It's a fantasy world that has certain tropes that tend to come along with it, you know, moldering old houses, the possibility of the supernatural. There are a lot of twins, you know, these sorts of qualities. And so I kept trying to write my way into that world but the tone and the approach I was using had all those elements from Look at Me, kind of satire, cynicism, urbanness, irony. And it was a non-starter because the sensibility that goes along with all of the Look at Me elements found the Gothic to be a ludicrous place, not worthy of attention or examination. So it was essentially like the narrator was telling the reader, this is so ridiculous. Well, who wants to read a book that is being presented that way? So it took me a long time with that book to find the narrative approach that would kind of unlock that world for me. And similarly with Manhattan Beach, going in, I really thought, look, I've just written a book about time, explicitly about time, in which I made use of fragmentation to suggest the kind of epic sweep of time. And I'm sure as hell not, after all that, going to try to get a reader to just believe that it's 1942 and we're all going to just skip along through a story when, in fact, so much time has passed since then. So my narrative approach initially with Manhattan Beach was much more interventionist. My narrator kind of winked at the reader about the fact that we're going to pretend we're in 1942, but we all really know that, look, 9-11 happened. So I tried to create a narrative awareness of the fact that this was a pretense, an artificially set historical moment that we all know has long passed. But as in the other example of using the tools of Look at Me and The Keep, this was really not effective as a narrative approach. And I know that because I'm in a writing group, I should have mentioned that earlier, of peers to whom I sometimes bring in work at a very early phase just to find out if the voice is sort of working, if it feels alive. 
And what I found was that they were sort of interested in the kind of noirish New York. But when that narrator started intruding and suggesting all of the things I just mentioned, they hated it. It took them out. They felt that the narrator was kind of invasive and actually kind of manipulative and also talking down to them. Because I remember someone saying to me, why do you think you need to remind us that it's not 1942? Do you think we're in danger of thinking that it is 1942? None of us was alive in 1942. And I realized, like, why am I doing this? What purpose is it serving? And then the, the surest sign of the right change is when it feels like a relief to let go of something, as when I mentioned giving up on work that isn't working. When I let go of that intrusive narrator, I felt like I was floating because I realized this is a story that will thrive best if it's immersive. Let the reader be there. Let's just do it together. We'll just pretend. And what I realized as I went on was that I was actually kind of tired of myself using a lot of those experimental techniques that really I had by then been using for three books, starting with Look at Me. Fragmentation, irony, very contemporary in point of view, a lot of technology. I just let it all go, and it made me better able to take on a kind of writing and a kind of storytelling, because in the end, the technique is what lets you tell one kind of story or another. And in this case, it was more of an epic where there are things like shipwrecks and murders. I'm not sure that kind of drama lends itself to fragmentation and irony. The ship sinks. Just give it to us. And that was such a pleasure to do. Did you go back to your group to see that having abandoned that more ironic or self-conscious narrator, how they would react? Yes, I certainly did. And I was relieved when they were relieved that I had finally stopped doing this. They had reached a point where they almost did an intervention because they basically said, we are becoming angry with this. <laughs> and I thought, if this is really not the reaction I'm looking for from my reader. Basically, my reader hates my narrator. This is not a good situation. So I was really happy to have their seal of approval that I was no longer enraging them simply with my narrative approach. Jennifer, who were your literary idols or icons when you were in college? And are they still models that you have or have you outgrown them? That's an interesting question. I loved John Fowles, an English writer who passed away some time ago, who has really kind of gone into eclipse, but he was very popular and, and I think taken very seriously from a literary standpoint. And he wrote a book called The Magus that absolutely obsessed me when I was in high school. And I really thought he was my favorite writer. I don't know what I would think of that book if I reread it now. But in a way, there's no point. It's actually very gothic. It has twins and an old house. There are a lot of elements that I think I brought to the keep. I never really get disillusioned because I usually know what I want to go back to and what I'd rather just hold on to as a memory or sort of part of my aesthetic DNA. It doesn't necessarily need to be reexamined. And in fact, when I looked back, there was a whole thread of Gothic material I had enjoyed starting as a grade schooler watching Dark Shadows, which was a soap opera that was very cheesy and totally Gothic. Twins, coffins, old house, you know, ghosts. My mother forbade me to watch it, which, of course, only made it all the more appealing. There's no way I would want to watch that now, but I don't need to. It's sort of all in me. 
So in terms of college, well, the first writer I ever actually read and then listened to was Margaret Atwood. She visited my university, and it was the most thrilling thing. And I think The Handmaid's Tale had maybe come out fairly recently. She read to us from it. She has remained such a vital and productive writer, and that's been really thrilling. And actually, another one is Joyce Carol Oates, someone I admired then and continue to admire now who remains so productive. Don DeLillo, I discovered him more after college, but again, remains productive, remains a kind of longstanding influence. One of the first books of real literary heft that I read on my own, a kind of classic, let's say, that I didn't read for school but just picked up on my own was Edith Wharton's The House of Mirth, which remains really sort of a touchstone for me. I've read it many, many times. I just assigned it in a class that I was teaching this past semester at the University of Pennsylvania. So I read it with 60 undergraduates, and I feel like I got to know it in a different way through them. And I'm going to write an introduction to it, actually, for a new edition that Scribner is pointing out. So there are certain books that I really do go back to again and again and feel a very longstanding relationship to. And then the one other thing I'll say about reading is that because my books are so different from each other, as you pointed out, there's usually a whole constellation of reading that goes along with each one that really guides me in my reading for periods of years. So working on Manhattan Beach, which I started researching in like 2005, I mostly stuck to fiction from the last years of the 19th century and the first 40, 50 years of the 20th century for years. And when I was working on The Keep, I read only Gothic for about two years. And you can easily read only Gothic for that amount of time because it goes way back and it continues to happen. Stephen King, Joyce Carol Oates again. So it is really fun. One of the benefits of writing books that are so different from each other is that, in a way, it guides me into a whole different universe of reading each time. Would it interest you what Edith Wharton would think about your books or any other of the icons that you mentioned who are still alive or the relationship that you had and even have with them is a one-way street and not a two-way street. It's more what they give to you than what you could offer them. I think it's probably more the latter. I mean, I, I think that it's been amazing to ever have someone I admire like my work, but I feel more like these are relationships that each of us occupy different elements of with different people. So there are certain people who have helped me a great deal those probably aren't the people I can help a great deal, but I can help other people a great deal. And hopefully they can help some other people a great deal. I try to honor my part in those relationships and not expect that everything has to be reciprocal because, once again, that's one of those kind of rigid expectations that I think isn't reflected in real life. We have reached the end of this really superb, insightful, passionate conversation. I'm very grateful. And I have one more question for you. And that question, in a way, comes back to something we were talking about. We live, for better or worse, in the age that has been called the age of fake news, maybe not always by those that we would like to name our age. And I wonder if you think that fiction is itself fake news. No, because fake news is fraudulent information pretending to be real in order to serve someone's agenda. 
And that isn't at all what fiction is. The thing that I think is so remarkable about fiction and the reason that I think it should survive no matter how many other forms of narrative we come up with is that it is the only narrative form that gives us the feeling of being inside another consciousness. Nothing else does that. Anything that is image-based is exactly the opposite. You're starting with a picture, so you're on the outside, and the effort is at trying to give you a sense of the consciousness inside that image. But fiction does that thing that none of us can do, which is actually get outside the confines of our own perceptions and consciousness and feel what it's like to look at the world through a different set of perceptions. And so that's why when they do studies on people who read fiction, they find that they're more empathetic. The very act of reading fiction is empathetic. You must use empathy in order to do it. And so to me, fake news is just yet another propaganda tool. There's nothing new about that. It's playing on the problem that I talked about discovering myself back in 2000, writing about the gay kids who were closeted at home and led out lives online. Online experience is fraught with deception. And there are always those who will, for whatever reasons, will try to use any tools they can to deceive other people around them to achieve their own ends. This has been going on since the beginning of time. But I think that there's no overlap between that goal and the goal of putting one human being into the emotions and thoughts of another and letting them have that experience. Well, I couldn't have wished for a better conclusion. And I really can't thank you enough, not only for this terrific conversation, but for the books you've published. They have given me enormous pleasure and a sense of discovery every time whenever I read them. Well, thank you. Anais Nin said that we write to taste life twice, in the moment and in retrospect. In a book, readers get the finished product, live packaged. Writers will tell you, as Jennifer Egan eloquently does, that how stories take shape, which scenes are organized, what words are chosen, in what way characters take form, is one of the most exciting human endeavors, one that competes with God in the craft of creation. For better or worse, we have turned literature into an industry. Books are sold and bought. Publicity campaigns are orchestrated. Authors go on tours, sign copies, grant interviews. All of this is the visible side of art. But it is the other side of literature, the private one, the invisible side, that is far more interesting. A writer exists in isolation. Among a sea of words, the writer chooses a selection. At first, they are just words placed on a page or on a screen. But the words are conduits. They invoke images which, placed in the right sequence, give birth to an alternative reality. That reality comes alive in unexplainable ways. And soon, it isn't any word the writer is looking for, but the right word, the irreplaceable word, the one that is crucial to tell the story in a specific, inalterable way. The magic of literature is the magic of conjuring a world with its own rules. 
In the solitude of their own imagination, writers are illusionists. They look for a specific world, a specific image, a specific scene, and when they find it, when they deliver it to us, we have the chance to feel whole, to recognize that our reality is actually unfinished, and that the art of wrapping it up, explaining it, making it make some sense, is glorious. To see illustrations of our In Contrast guests by Burns Maxey, and for over 50 previous episodes of our In Contrast podcast, visit our website at nepr.net. Help spread the word about In Contrast by reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, where we invite you to share your comments on this program and others in our series. Our music is by the Fresh Cut Orchestra. The executive producer of In Contrast is John Vosey. I'm Ilan Stavans. Thank you for listening. In Contrast is a production of New England Public Radio and Quixote Productions.